The Productive Woman, Episode 474. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Productive Woman. My name is Laura McClellan and this is a podcast about productivity for busy women. My goal is to help you find the tools and encouragement you need to manage your time, life, stress, and stuff so you can accomplish the things you care about most and make a life that matters. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This episode is the next in our recurring productive reading series, this time talking about some key takeaways from Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lemke. You'll find more information and links in the show notes for this episode at theproductivewoman.com slash 474. This episode is brought to you by Calm. I wonder, do you get into bed and start checking all your social media apps and then all of a sudden 45 minutes have passed? If you're a nighttime doom scroller, let Calm help you form new healthy bedtime habits. Calm is the number one app for sleep and meditation, giving you the power to calm your mind and change your life. Calm recognizes that everyone faces unique challenges in their daily lives, that mental health needs differ from person to person, and that time for things like meditation may vary. And since self-care practices are so deeply personal, Calm strives to provide content that caters to your preferences and needs. Their meditations range from focuses on anxiety and stress, relaxation and focus, to building habits and taking care of your physical well-being. They have sleep stories with hundreds of titles to choose from, including sleep meditations and calming music that will have you drifting off to dreamland quickly and naturally. They even have expert-led talks on topics such as tips for overcoming stress and anxiety, handling grief, improving self-esteem, caring for relationships, and so much more. The Calm app puts the tools you need to feel better in your back pocket. And if you go to calm.com slash tpw, you can take advantage of a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. That's the one that I have that I have paid for myself for the last several years and use almost every night. And new content is added every week. So no matter how often you go to the app, you're going to find something new and helpful for you. So you can stress less, sleep more, and live better with Calm. For listeners of The Productive Woman, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash tpw. So go to calm, C-A-L-M dot com slash tpw for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. Once again, that's calm.com slash tpw. All right, so this week we are continuing our recurring productive reading series. In the past, we have talked about lessons and key takeaways that I've found in books about various productivity-related topics or that I found helpful and thought-provoking, including books by authors like Gary Keller, Charles Duhigg, Brene Brown, Courtney Carver, Jeff Sanders, James Clear, Michael Hyatt, Maura Neville-Thomas, Joshua Becker, Greg McEwen, Cal Newport, Dominique Saxe, Laura Vanderkam, and most recently talking about Nir Ayal's book, 
a very interesting book called Indistractable. That was in episode 454. We'll include links to the past episodes of the Productive Reading series in the show notes for this episode, so you can check them out and, and see if you can maybe find some recommendations for your next interesting read. This week, though, I'm going to be sharing some of my most important takeaways from an intriguing book by psychiatrist Dr. Anna Lemke called Dopamine Nation. So who is Anna Lemke? Uh, according to the book cover copy, Anna Lemke is the medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, the program director for Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's the recipient of numerous awards for outstanding research in mental illness, for excellence in teaching, and for clinical innovation and treatment. A clinician scholar, she has published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and commentaries in prestigious outlets such as the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA. She sits on the board of several state and national addiction-focused organizations, has testified before various committees in the United States House of Representatives and Senate, keeps an active speaking calendar, and maintains a thriving clinical practice. So she is a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, a medically trained psychiatrist with a clinical practice, but a great deal of research into uh, subjects related to addiction. And I'm going to talk in a minute about why that's relevant to this podcast and why I felt like this was such a good book to talk about as part of this uh, productive reading series. So why did I read the book? I, I don't recall where I first heard of this book, but the title and the description of it intrigued me because one of my ongoing interests is puzzling out the reasons we, I, we all, many of us, so often struggle to do the things that we need and want to do, including things like achieving the goals that we so meticulously and hopefully set for ourselves. We have things we want to accomplish, ways we want to use our time to be productive, and sometimes we struggle to do that. And there are lots of reasons why that happens, and it's just something that's interesting to me. In our last installment of the Productive Reading series, we looked at Nir Eyal's intriguing book, Indistractable, which was subtitled, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And as we discussed in that episode, that book asks us, what could you accomplish if you could stay focused? And then the book goes on to discuss the psychology of distraction and offer some solutions to help us manage and maintain the focus that we need to achieve our goals. Well, this episode's book digs even deeper into some very similar issues. What keeps us from doing the things that we need and want to do and, and making the lives that matter to us as we define them. Uh, and so she, in this book, looks at both the psychology and the physiology of addictive behavior that can interfere with our ability to accomplish those things that are important to us. The book is subtitled Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And I've just found that intriguing. I, I certainly personally seek a better sense of balance in my own life. And this whole concept of this being the age of indulgence just caught my attention 
And uh, that's why I bought the book and read it. It's structured in several parts. It's got an introduction and then three main sections. Part one is called The Pursuit of Happiness. Part two is called Self-Binding. And part three is called The Pursuit of Pain. And starting in the introduction to the book, she basically introduces the problem that the book is intended to address. In the very beginning of the book, she says, this book is about pleasure. It's also about pain. Most important, it's about the relationship between pleasure and pain and how understanding that relationship has become essential for a life well lived. That's literally the first couple of sentences of the book and really sets the tone for what she's talking about in the book. And she goes into why it's necessary to write about this, why she is interested in this, where it came from out of her own practice as a psychiatrist. And one of the things she says in the introduction is this, because we've transformed the world from a place of scarcity to a place of overwhelming abundance, Drugs, food, news, gambling, shopping, gaming, texting, sexting, Facebooking, Instagramming, YouTubing, tweeting. The increased numbers, variety, and potency of highly rewarding stimuli today is staggering. The smartphone, she says, is the modern-day hypodermic needle, delivering digital dopamine 24-7 for a wired generation. And then she says, if you haven't met your drug of choice yet, it's coming soon to a website near you. And I just thought that was a very thought-provoking sentence or, or paragraph as she talked about in the, in the beginnings of the book about all the various ways our world is structured to catch our attention and hold it and get us addicted to various kinds of things. She then goes on to say, this book offers practical solutions for how to manage compulsive overconsumption in a world where consumption has become the all-encompassing motive of our lives. And that really made me pause to think about how much of our lives, my life, um, is centered around consumption and how little time most of us spend creating and I, you know, it got me thinking about how, whether I create anything of value. I mean, I do this podcast, I guess. It's, it's my sort of creative outlet. But I'd invite you as, as we think about the sorts of things that she talks about in this book and that I'll be sharing in this episode to consider how much time you spend creating things. And maybe you do. Maybe you are one of those who is creating things, actually producing something creative in your life. Certainly in past generations, women did needlework, like sewing or embroidery or quilting and those sorts of things, both for practical purposes and for creative expression. Uh, they did cooking and baking. They did gardening. And they did various things like that because in a world where money and pre-made goods were scarce, our creative ingenuity was necessary for survival. And in addition, it could also create a sense of satisfaction. I wonder sometimes if in our modern world where most of us have 
plenty of resources and almost anything that we want to use or need to use or consume is pre-made for us. Um, we miss out on the sense of satisfaction of creating something new. And most of our life is centered around consumption, whether of food or media or, you know, other things like that. And that's kind of what she talks about in the beginning of this book and, and kind of what the consequence of that kind of world has been for us as, as a species. So part one of the book is called The Pursuit of Happiness. And in that um, part of the book, she discusses the science behind addiction and the risk factors for it. One of the things she says is, one of the biggest risk factors for getting addicted to any drug is easy access to that drug. When it's easier to get a drug, we're more likely to try it. In trying it, we're more likely to get addicted to it. And then she offers various examples. Uh, she talks about alcohol addiction and its effects and how they declined in the United States during Prohibition, which was part of our history. And it increased, uh, that is, addiction and the effects of addiction increased after prohibition was lifted. Now, what she says in talking about this is that some use of this will exist no matter whether it's legal or not. There are people who, you know, there was a black market and people will find and use these things. But in general, the harder something is to get, the less often it will be used and the fewer the number of people who will use it. And she gave other examples, one of them being the proliferation of pornography. It's always been around, but the internet has made it very easy to get. And the consequence of that ease of access has been an explosion of people addicted to pornography and the negative effects that roll out of that. She also talks about the opioid crisis as another example of um, there are, you know, mechanisms in place to make it widely, opioids widely available. And as a result, um, addiction has been epidemic and all the negative effects that come from that. So those are some of the examples that she gives in talking about this. But it's really important to keep in mind as we're talking about this that when she refers to drugs and her phrase that she uses often throughout the book, the drug of choice, she's not using it to mean just the things we typically think of as drugs, but as anything that can produce that hit of dopamine that our brains will then drive us to seek again. So substances, yes, but also activities and experiences can be addictive. And I, I'm sharing this, I guess, because I think it's valuable as a backdrop to the discussion of some of the other things I took away from this book. Even if you are not personally a, a drug user in the sense of, you know, whether it's cocaine or alcohol or opioids or anything else, everything she talks about in this book is relevant to all of us because I think she would argue we all have a drug of choice and we use it for certain purposes, which we'll get into in a minute. As another bit of background she talks about in this first section of the book, what addiction is. It is the compulsive pursuit of a particular reward-producing behavior or substance, 
despite the resulting harm to self or others. Addiction brings on a narrowed focus to our life, the person's life, uh, on getting or experiencing whatever that drug of choice is. It is, she says, a type of bondage. And so addiction is this compulsive, that is, you're compelled to do it. Compulsive overconsumption of anything, drugs, alcohol, video games, social media, sex, anything can be a, an addiction. And as a result of all of this, she, we are, she says in one of her YouTube interviews and in the book, we are titillating ourselves to death. Pursuing pleasure to the point of damaging our health, our minds, our relationships. Uh, she points out in the book and in, in several interviews that I watched uh, of her on YouTube uh, that the top three causes of death worldwide are diseases that are caused by modifiable risk factors. And those top three risk factors are overweight, smoking, and being sedentary. And all of these behaviors, all of these risk factors are, are fed by the abundance of and easy access to pleasure-producing substances and activities, from food to cigarettes to video games and beyond. And she goes into much more detail about that in, in the book, uh, sharing more examples and explaining it more than I can in just uh, this summary episode. So that's part one of the book. Part two is called Self-Binding. And in this section, she talks about mechanisms and approaches for sort of breaking the cycle and breaking free from addiction, whether your addiction is to substances or to behaviors. And, and there are a lot of kind of practical ways of, of breaking that cycle and, and breaking free from the bondage of addiction. And then part three is called The Pursuit of Pain. And here she makes the case, and I am oversimplifying here, but she, she makes the case for a more judicious use of medication uh, to, to deal with the discomforts and the pains of life and a more intentional acceptance of discomfort that can lead to a better balance in the areas of our brain that process pleasure and pain. And that, as I said, is a very much an oversimplification of what that part of the book is about. But I'll share some, some of the highlights from it here in a bit. Dr. Lemke is a medical doctor, medically trained doctor. She's a psychiatrist. So there's lots of science, uh, specifically neuroscience, in this book. But it's explained in a very accessible way and illustrated with stories of her own and her patients' experiences with addictive behaviors. She shares very openly about her past experience with uh, being addicted to romance novels of a particular type. And she kind of talks about how it happened, how it started, how it steamrolled, and um, how she broke free of it. And then she has lots of anecdotal stories throughout the book illustrating the various principles and the concepts that she's talking about. Obviously, she changes the names and the facts, uh, and she has her, her client's permission to share the stories with, with these um, changes so that they're not personally identifiable. 
So that's the basic structure of the book. Um, I wanted to share then some of my key takeaways and uh, some of the particular quotes from the book that really uh, spoke to me as I was thinking about all of this and trying to process it. What, what I found particularly interesting was how much of what she had to say um, kind of worked well or dovetailed with some of the other books that we've talked about, some of Brene Brown's work uh, near Ayal's book that I mentioned already, um, and how all of those things kind of work together. And so much of what she talks about provide some scientific backdrop to what some of these other books have have shared. So among the key takeaways for me from this book were a couple of important scientific discoveries. The first one being dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. That is, it it carries messages across the the gaps or the synapses between the neurons in the brain. And it was first identified in the human brain as a neurotransmitter in the 1950s. So it's kind of relatively recent uh, in our human history. Um, Briefly, she summarizes uh, the science here or how the, the brain function. Uh, she says the main functional cells of the brain are called neurons. They communicate with each other at synapses via electrical signals and neurotransmitters. She also says dopamine may play a bigger role in mo- the motivation to get a reward than the pleasure of the reward itself. That is, it's about wanting more than liking. And she says, Dopamine is used to measure the addictive potential of any behavior or drug. The more dopamine a drug releases in the brain's reward pathway, and the faster it releases dopamine, the more addictive the drug. This is not to say that high dopamine substances literally contain dopamine. Rather, they trigger the release of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway. And she explains all of this in a really interesting way in the book. Uh, But those are kind of some of the key highlights for me that I think are important to understand uh, as we uh, consider the rest of what she has to say in the book. So just the the discovery of dopamine and its function in the human brain was interesting to me and important to, to understand. And another important scientific discovery was that pleasure and pain are processed in kind of the same area or or overlapping areas of the brain. Uh, And I thought that was interesting. So pleasure and pain are, are processed kind of in the same areas of the brain, and the brain prefers equilibrium. Uh, a balance between the two, between pleasure and pain, what she refers to as homeostasis. She says, and I'm kind of summarizing here, if we engage in a behavior or ingest a substance that evokes pleasure, that is, it rewards us with a hit of dopamine, the brain goes to work to reestablish homeostasis, to raise the the pain side of the equation by, among other things, regulating dopamine production so that then it becomes a situation where it takes more of the activity or behavior just to feel the same level of pleasure. And we've all experienced this in a a situation where 
we all know that the the fifth or the tenth piece of chocolate doesn't taste quite as good as the first one did, right? So as the brain is uh, regulating dopamine production in order to reestablish homeostasis between pleasure and pain, that drives us to overconsumption in an unconscious effort to recreate that first euphoric response. But she says it has the opposite result. The greater the frequency and amount of the reward-producing activity or substance, the more the brain regulates and decreases the dopamine receptors and production. So whatever this substance or this activity that gave us that that hit that caused um, the production of dopamine that, you know, caused us to feel pleasure, the brain is regulating that so we're not feeling it as much. And the more we engage in that behavior or ingest that substance, the, the more the brain is working to maintain or reestablish homeostasis. And so we're, it's decreasing the amount of dopamine that's being released. She thinks in the book that, that this all explains the fact that in a time of unprecedented abundance, we as a species are measurably less happy than ever. We're experiencing unprecedented levels of depression, anxiety disorder, chronic pain, and suicide. And she talks about this in you know some detail. Uh, and she says that studies disclose that the steepest declines in happiness throughout the world are uh, in the wealthiest nations. So one of the things she said is that it, this provides evidence that having too much material wealth can be as bad as having too little. Dopamine overload impairs our ability to delay gratification, social media exaggeration, and post-truth politics. She says, let's call it what it is, lying, amplify our sense of scarcity. The result is that even amidst plenty, we feel impoverished. So there are studies that have been done worldwide that show we are, as a species, as a humankind, less happy now than we were 10 or or more 20, 50 years ago. Um, and reading all this, as she was talking about that, I, I saw a possible explanation for the, the mystery, to me, I guess, of the number of wealthy, famous people who either commit suicide or engage in self-destructive excess. They are seeking that euphoria that they first experienced, but they, the, the constant availability and therefore the constant exposure to whatever their drug of choice is leads to this balancing act that the brain does, and they end up, as she says, titillating themselves to death. She sees uh, the correlation between access to an overabundance of goods and experiences and this decline in happiness. Those um, depressive emotions are the result of repeated exposure to highly pleasurable, highly rewarding behaviors and substances, which pushes the brain to decrease dopamine and moves us to the pain side of the scale. That is, uh, and, and one of the things she said that I thought was kind of um, 
I don't know what word I want to use. It concerns me. It, it explains a lot, I guess. Um, but the idea that when dopamine production decreases beyond a certain point, our compulsive seeking of it creates this obsessive focus on that one substance or experience as we're trying to recreate that euphoric feeling from the beginning. And it makes us unable to find pleasure in any other areas of life, in our careers, in our relationships, and so on. And she describes that uh, concept and that effect in, in some detail and illustrates it with stories from her own life and from, from those of her patients. So the idea is that, that the more we expose our brains to highly rewarding activities and substances, the more likely it is that our brains will tip us toward the side of pain, trying again to restore that homeostasis. The result, she says, is something she calls chronic dopamine deficits, which lead to the emotional and mental health effects that I've already mentioned, the, the depression, the anxiety, um, chronic pain, all of these sorts of things. Thus, she says, we can conceptualize modern despair as a result of overabundance. And uh, I see the effects of it, the way she described it really made a lot of sense to me. And then she talks about why is this all happening? And she, and, and goes again into the neuroscience of it. She, we have, she says, brains that evolved in a world of scarcity and ever present danger. And this um, way that our brains developed has led us to reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain. That doesn't surprise anybody. We we move towards pleasurable things. We move away from, we try to avoid painful things. This is a useful survival mechanism in times of scarcity, but it is, she says, counterproductive in an age of abundance because the overabundance of and our repeated exposure to these reward-producing substances and activities triggers that balancing mechanism that we experience as basically developing a tolerance for pleasure, for whatever the pleasurable thing is. Um, quoting from the book, she says, needing more of a substance to feel pleasure or experiencing less pleasure at a given dose is called tolerance. And tolerance, she says, is an important factor in the development of addiction. So as all of this, because of the way the brain works to restore equilibrium or homeostasis between pleasure and pain, we develop a tolerance for whatever the pleasurable thing is, and it takes more and more of it to give us the same level of pleasure. It's so important, though, as we talk about this, and as I read these quotes where she refers to substances, it's so important to recognize that this isn't just about inherently harmful substances like cocaine or alcohol. This concept, this of tolerance and, and all the other things we've talked about, applies across the board. It includes things that aren't inherently dangerous or bad. I'm using kind of you know, air quotes. Uh, it can include things like shopping or coffee or social media, sex, food, video games, work, 
physical activities like bodybuilding or skydiving, all of those things can become addictive and we can compulsively over consume them. And, and I think it's also important to keep in mind as we hear about these things or read about them, if you choose to read the book, it's very easy to identify compulsive overconsumption in other people. It's not so easy in ourselves. Um, we are good at deceiving ourselves about our level of consumption uh, and that it's you know not so bad. It's not causing a problem the way that person's thing is. In any event, she says the risk of addiction to any substance or behavior increases with increasing potency, quantity, and duration. And my thought in reading it, this in the book and in listening to her talk about it in a couple of her uh, YouTube videos, um, the more we pursue happiness, the more we experience the chronic dopamine deficit that leaves us less happy than ever. I mean, to me, that's the gist of what she's saying here. Uh, one quote from the book kind of says that very thing. She says, the paradox is that hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake, leads to anhedonia, which is the inability to enjoy pleasure of any kind. She also says, science teaches us that every pleasure exacts a price, and the pain that follows is longer lasting and more intense than the pleasure that gave rise to it. With prolonged and repeated exposure to pleasurable stimuli, our capacity to tolerate pain decreases and our threshold for experiencing pleasure increases. And understand pain here doesn't necessarily mean physical body pain, although it can, uh, but it can just be mental or emotional discomfort. It can be intellectual discomfort. Any kind of pain and discomfort falls into that. And her point here is when we pursue pleasure, our capacity to tolerate pain decreases and our threshold for experiencing pleasure increases. That it is, it takes more and more and more of that substance or, or whatever the stimulus is to actually feel pleasure. Then she goes on to say, the net effect is that we now need more reward to feel pleasure and less injury to feel pain. This recalibration is occurring not just at the level of the individual, but also at the level of nations. Uh, and I thought that explains so much that we see in the world. We really are, as, as humankind, as a species, more easily wounded, whether emotionally, psychologically, or whatever, than ever before in history. To some extent, we are all snowflakes, you know, a word that's thrown around about people that get offended easily. We actually are more easily wounded than uh, we were 10, 20, 30 or more years ago. And I think this helps to explain the rampant inability to tolerate disagreement or to tolerate those who think differently than we do. We all get offended more easily. And this again comes, I think, uh, she, what she talks about explains so much of that, that our brains have have changed 
because we live in a time of such abundance and so much pleasure that we are incapable of tolerating discomfort in a way that we never used to be. Uh, she says at one point in the book, we are all running from pain. Some of us take pills. Some of us couch surf while binge watching Netflix. Some of us read romance novels. We'll do almost anything to distract ourselves from ourselves. Yet all this trying to insulate ourselves from pain seems only to have made our pain worse. And I see the evidence of that. I've, I've experienced it myself. I don't know about you, but it, th this was so thought-provoking to me. And I immediately thought about how consistent this was or this is, with the message from Nir Eyal's book, um, Indistractable, where he noted that, and I'm quoting from his book, the drive to relieve discomfort is the root cause of all our behavior, while everything else is a proximate cause. And he says, unless we deal with the root causes of our distraction, we'll continue to find ways to distract ourselves. Distraction, it turns out, isn't about the distraction itself, Rather, it's about how we respond to it. Only by understanding our pain can we begin to control it and find better ways to deal with negative urges. That's exactly what she's talking about. And she explains the neuroscience of why that is. And both of their messages are very similar to what Brooke Castillo talks about with respect to learning to feel our emotions instead of buffering which is her word for the things that we do to distract ourselves from uncomfortable emotions. As Ayal says in his book, we, we can cope with uncomfortable internal triggers by reflecting on rather than reacting to our discomfort. And uh, Dr. Lemke says a lot of the same kinds of things later on in her book. As we talked about, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain evolved as a survival mechanism, and it's subconscious and reflexive. We don't do this intentionally. It just happens. But to, to counter that, we have to be very intentional about seeking out certain types of pain, uh, discomfort that is, such as exercise in moderation and something she calls radical truth-telling, because she says these kinds of pain are interpreted by the brain as injury, and the brain responds by tipping us to the pleasure side, that is increasing dopamine production and activating dopamine receptors as a means of restoring homeostasis. And as she talks about in her book, just as repeated exposure to pleasure-inducing stimuli can build tolerance, um, that is, reducing our experience of pleasure, we can, through careful, repeated exposure to discomfort, build tolerance to that as well. So the first step to overcoming this compulsive overconsumption, that is, when we are overconsuming, whether it's a substance or an activity or whatever it might be, and we are overconsuming it, we're compelled to do so. It, we don't even have control over it anymore. She says the first step to overcoming that is what she calls a dopamine fast. 
which is abstaining from the drug of choice, whatever that is, for a period long enough for our brains to reset the neurological pleasure pathways so the person can find pleasure again in other ways other than whatever this substance or activity is. And she finds that it takes about four weeks. That's been her observation um, with helping her patients. So the process then, if you have recognized um, that you are in this kind of bondage of compulsive overconsumption, whether it's of spending or um, you know coffee or what, whatever it might be that is uh, interfering with your life, first of all, to identify what your drug of choice is, and second then is to engage in a dopamine fast for at least four weeks. Um, and she goes into more detail about the process of doing this in the book. It's very much well worth reading. Um, but one thing I wanted to point out, she talks in that section about the importance of mindfulness practices during that time. She says, many of us use high dopamine substances and behaviors to distract ourselves from our own thoughts. Just what we were talking about a minute ago. She says, when we first stop using dopamine to escape, those painful thoughts, emotions, and sensations come crashing down on us. The trick is to stop running away from painful emotions and instead allow ourselves to tolerate them. When we're able to do this, our experience takes on a new and unexpectedly rich texture. The pain is still there, but somehow transformed seeming to encompass a vast landscape of communal suffering rather than being wholly our own. So becoming mindful of this and sitting with the emotions, I guess, knowing that they're going to come and not run away from them. So you identify what your drug of choice is, you engage in a dopamine fast, abstain from whatever that is for at least four weeks, um, practicing mindfulness during that time. And during that time, also begin preparing a detailed plan for after the fast is over, how you'll proceed in such a way as to avoid succumbing again. Um, for some people, that means never uh, consuming that substance or experience again. For others, it means finding a new way to, uh, to consume it without it becoming compulsive again. And so she talks about something called self-binding mechanisms, finding ways to make access less easy. Uh, for example, one of the thing, example of something she talks about is, uh, is this, just track, uh, and this is a quote from the book, just tracking how much time we spend consuming, for example, by clocking our smartphone use, is one way to become aware of and thereby mitigate consumption. When we make conscious use of objective facts, like how much time we're using, we're less able to deny them and therefore in a better position to take action. So thinking about those sorts of things, finding other healthier ways to trigger healthy amounts of dopamine production. One thing that was interesting to me was her discussion of the fact that learning also increases dopamine firing in the brain. She said, the brain changes that occur in response to a stimulating and novel environment are similar to those seen with high dopamine addictive drugs. So putting yourself into a setting where you can learn new things can trigger those same kinds of changes to your brain. 
She's also very much an advocate of physical movement as a source of healthy dopamine. As she says in, at one point, a key to well-being is for us to get off the couch and move our real bodies, not our virtual ones. As I tell my patients, she says, just walking in your neighborhood for 30 minutes a day can make a difference. That's because the evidence is indisputable. Exercise has a more profound and sustained positive effect on mood, anxiety, cognition, energy, and sleep than any pill I can prescribe. She talks about the role of radical honesty, um, pointing out that compulsive overconsumption leading to or as part of an addiction is fed by lies to ourselves and to others. She notes that humans are not the only animals with the capacity for deception, but no other animal rivals the human capacity for lying. And then she says, radical honesty, which is telling the truth about things large and small, especially when doing so exposes our foibles and entails consequences, is essential not just to recovery from addiction, but for all of us trying to live a more balanced life in our reward-saturated ecosystem. It works on many levels, she says. First, radical honesty promotes awareness of our actions. Second, it fosters intimate human connections. Third, it leads to a truthful autobiography, which holds us accountable not just to our present, but also to our future selves, Further, she says, telling the truth is contagious and might even prevent the development of future addictions. She says, truth-telling may change our brain, allowing us to be more aware of our pleasure-pain balance and the mental processes driving compulsive consumption and therefore change our behavior. And to her point about honesty fostering intimate connections, she has this to say, which I thought was really interesting, really made me think a lot. She says, telling the truth draws people in, especially when we're willing to expose our own vulnerabilities. This is counterintuitive because we assume that unmasking the less desirable aspects of ourselves will drive people away. And I'll just say, that's exactly what I've always thought. It's it's always been hard for me to, um, to open. I, I force myself in, in many ways to do it. But I always expect that if people really knew me and, and that they wouldn't like me. So anyway, she says, it logically makes sense that people would distance themselves when they learn about our character flaws and transgressions. In fact, the opposite happens. People come closer. They see in our brokenness their own vulnerability and humanity. They are reassured that they are not alone in their doubts, fears, and weaknesses. And she has, again, research and studies that back this up, but it was a very, oh, I want to say encouraging thing for me to read. Um, And I thought, as I read it, of the connection here to Brene Brown's writings on shame and vulnerability and how the first, how shame isolates us while vulnerability actually brings us close together. And Dr. Lemke says intimacy is its own source of dopamine. And she talks about the science behind human connection. Um, She says, 
Mutual honesty precludes shame and presages an intimacy explosion, a rush of emotional warmth that comes from feeling deeply connected to others when we're accepted despite our flaws. It is not our perfection, but our willingness to work together to remedy our mistakes that creates the intimacy we crave. Remember how Brene Brown has said many times, we are wired for connection. We need it. And shame breaks that connection, isolates us from each other. But honesty helps us to come together and creates, as as she says here, that intimacy we crave. She goes on to say, this kind of intimacy explosion is almost certainly accompanied by the release of our brain's own endogenous dopamine. But unlike the rush of dopamine we get from cheap pleasures, the rush we get from true intimacy is adaptive, rejuvenating, and health-promoting. So those are some of the, the great things that I took away from this book. If I had to say what the key message of the book is, I think I would start with what she talks about at the very end of the book. She ends with a list of the 10 lessons of balance, beginning with number one, which is that the relentless pursuit of pleasure and avoidance of pain leads to pain. And the 10th lesson is that instead of running away from the world, we can find escape by immersing ourselves in it. She says, the rewards of finding and maintaining balance are neither immediate nor permanent. They require patience and maintenance. We must be willing to move forward despite being uncertain of what lies ahead. We must have faith that actions today that seem to have no impact in the present moment are in fact accumulating in a positive direction, which will be revealed to us only at some unknown time in the future. Healthy practices happen day by day. And that's something very encouraging. And again, she's talking about overcoming addiction and breaking free from that bondage. But all of this, as she says more than once in the book, is applicable to all of us who want to create balance in a a world of uh, too much all the time. There's so much more to this book than what I've mentioned here. I think what I like best about it is that it's so honest and it's so thoughtful and it's backed by science. It's incredibly thought-provoking for me personally. And especially in the last half of the book, she offers some very practical and very inspiring suggestions on steps that we can take to break the bondage of compulsive overconsumption and engage fully in making our own lives that matter. She says toward the end, I urge you to find a way to immerse yourself fully in the life you've been given, to stop running from whatever you're trying to escape, and instead to stop and turn and face whatever it is. Then, she says, I dare you to walk toward it. In this way, the world may reveal itself to you as something magical and inspiring that does not require escape. Instead, the world may become something worth paying attention to. And I I just found that very moving and very inspiring personally. And I hope hope it, you know, is, is something meaningful to you as well. In the show notes, I will also share links to a few of, of the many YouTube videos 
um, in which she's been interviewed and has talked about all this stuff. But I really, really encourage you to read the book or listen to the book. You may wonder, well, what is the relevance of all of this to a podcast about productivity? And I, I think for me, the reason why I wanted to share this one is that understanding how our minds work is important. It, if understanding that helps us to identify something in us, in the way we're thinking, in the choices we're making that might be interfering with our ability to accomplish the things we care about, then it's very much worth considering. I, I would love to know what you think about this. Have you read Dopamine Nation? If so, what did you think? I'd love it if you would share your takeaway with us. If you haven't read it, uh, maybe you could share a productivity-related book that you have read recently that you'd recommend. You can share your thoughts on this book or your recommendations for other things that we might check out in the comments section of the show notes for this episode, which you'll find at theproductivewoman.com slash 474. Or you can post a comment or question on the Productive Woman Facebook page. If you're a member of the Productive Woman Community Facebook group, um, that's a great place to have this conversation continued, and I'd love to hear from you there. Uh, as always, if you prefer to share your thoughts with me privately, you can do that by emailing your questions, comments, or suggestions to me at feedback at theproductivewoman.com, and I would love to hear from you. Before we go, I just a reminder that for listeners of The Productive Woman, Calm is offering that exclusive offer of 40% off their premium subscription. Go to calm.com slash tpw. That's calm, C-A-L-M dot com slash tpw for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. And that, my friends, is it for this episode of The Productive Woman. As always, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope you felt like it was worthwhile and you found something in it that's helpful or thought-provoking or encouraging to you. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. So until next time, remember, extend grace to each other and to yourself and go make your life matter.